Hello everyone, welcome back to the Perspectives on the Short Story podcast from FSU Panama City. As always, I'm your host, Michael, and this episode is part two of the James Joyce coverage for this week. Here, we'll be talking about a short story titled Araby, included as a part of Dubliners, a collection of short stories published in 1914. Araby is estimated to have been written between 1905 and 1907, during Joyce's stay in Trieste, Italy. Much like the contents of Dubliners, Araby captures an intimate snapshot of a moment in the life of a person living in Dublin. In this instance, we follow a young boy on the verge of adolescence. His family has recently moved into North Richmond Street in the house of a recently deceased priest. The inhabitants of the street, much like many of the people of Ireland, were stringently Catholic. The narrator, who is unnamed, notices several secular belongings on the property, from fictional works to a bicycle pump hidden in the bushes. Still, the boy notes that the priest was a very generous individual, leaving his money to the institutions and furniture to his sister. Now, the institutions in this instance, of course, refers to like the Catholic Church and the Catholic institutions. So nothing shakes the boy's worldview yet, but the priest's hidden life shows that there are some cracks forming. The street leads to a dead end, and the only non-residential building in the area is the Christian Brothers School. The only sounds come from the ruckus of schoolboys, like the narrator, returning from their studies to play outside. These boys are on the cusp of adulthood. They are acutely aware of the grown-up world, taking interest in the things that lie beyond the walls of a church. Dublin's appearance reflects the drab outlook Joyce held for the city. There are dark, muddy lanes, dark, dripping gardens, and dark, odorous stables. You get the feeling Joyce didn't really like Dublin too much. Yet the innocence of the boys shines through, still unperturbed by the outside world. They deftly avoided the gaze of adults like the narrator's uncle while looking at their friend, while looking at their friend Megan's sister with wonder as she called her brother in for tea. Early in the story, it is made clear that the narrator has a particular interest in Mangan's sister, observing the flow of her dress and the swinging of her roped hair. He'd even watch her every morning, discreetly, and become flustered around her. The narrator was experiencing his first crush. This childhood infatuation would be like a shield for the narrator, protecting him from the grim, unromantic surroundings of Dublin with a dreamlike promise of warmth at the end of the tunnel. He'd ignore the drunken men and bargaining women of the streets, the curses of the workers, the noise of the adult world. It was as though the narrator imagined himself to be on a mission, braving the dark dregs of the city to reach the promised land. That hope enabled him to remain within his childhood bubble. One night, the narrator visits the drawing room where the priest had died. He observes the light in the neighboring house gleam on and is thankful that little is revealed for his imagination can fill the gaps. In a spiritual way, he implores, Oh, love, several times with his hands clasped together. It was as though he was trying to summon Mangan's sister. Eventually, the narrator's desires are fulfilled. Mangan's sister speaks to him, and the reality of her words collides with the built-up expectations he has constructed over time. The clash is so severe it disorients him, even though she simply asks if he is going to Araby. Araby, for those of you who do not know, is a bazaar that shows up every once in a while to grace the citizens of Dublin with foreign wares and goods. 
The narrator doesn't even remember if he said if he was going or not, but Mangan's sister laments that she cannot go due to a retreat that week with her convent. And so the narrator has a golden opportunity. He offers to bring something for Mangan's sister, to have his heroic moment to win her heart. The very thought of delivering something from Araby to her, the triumph he believes it will bring, keep him up at night. He obsesses over it, growing restless with everything else. School and family are but distractions to his new, grand purpose. He asks his uncle and aunt for permission to go, and he is met with a pushback he had never experienced from them in the past. His aunt chastises him, hoping it is not some Freemason affair. Nonetheless, they agree to let him go begrudgingly. On Saturday morning, the narrator excitedly reminds his uncle that he wishes to go to Araby that same evening. His uncle, of course, would provide him the means to purchase something. Walking to school that morning, the narrator feels dread in the air. Coming home does little to alleviate his feelings that something will go wrong. His uncle is still out, and each tick of the clock irritates the boy. To remedy this, he goes upstairs and attempts to drown it out with singing from room to room. He watches his friends playing on the streets below, now far removed from him. His attentions turn to the house where Mangan's sister lives, and he imagines her in the window. Downstairs, he finds an old, rambling woman, Mrs. Mercer. He endures more than an hour of her heat. When the clock strikes eight and Mrs. Mercer leaves, the narrator storms around the room. His aunt suggests he may have to put off the bazaar for this night of our lord. Finally, at nine o'clock, his uncle comes back home. Based on his behavior, the narrator figures out that he got drunk after work. The narrator's aunt takes pity on him and asks the uncle to give the boy some money to go to Araby. As it turns out, the uncle had forgotten. He hands his nephew the money and the boy leaves for his anticipated journey. The lateness of the excursion is made abundantly clear when the narrator has to sit in a third-class carriage of a deserted train to reach Araby. The trip takes nearly an hour. By the time he reaches the bazaar, nearly every stall is closed. The silence reminds him of a church after a service. He notices two men counting coins flirting with a lady at a stall. They speak with English accents and don't seem to notice him. He observes some porcelain and tea sets. When the narrator enters the area of the stall, the young woman begrudgingly exits her conversation to ask if he wants to buy anything. He timidly answers no. Happy with her due diligence done, the lady returns to her engrossing discussion with the two men. The narrator just awkwardly lingers in the stall, pretending to care and to save face. He gives up soon after and walks out of the bazaar, hearing a voice informing him of its closing for the night. The paltry clinks of the coins in his pocket remind him of what little value he has compared to the men of the stall counting their large profits. He stares into the darkness, his bubble burst. His eyes tear up as he realizes how ugly the real world actually is. So, Araby is a coming-of-age story that ends on a somber note. But, really, the story was dropping hints left and right that it wouldn't really have a happy ending. And this is really in line with a lot of Joyce's depictions of Dublin and its people. It's cynical and harsh, but reflective of the real experiences of that city life. 
If you listened to the first episode on James Joyce, you may have also picked up on the parallels between his own life and the narrator's. Both have a penchant for singing, and both take an interest in the wider world. But most importantly, like the narrator, Joyce was raised in a Catholic school system, but he began to drift apart from it as he observed more of the city. We get many details in the story that communicate Joyce's anti-Catholic attitude. The church often acts as the separator between the narrator and what he wants. It keeps Mangan's sister away as she goes away for a week with her convent. Its influence nearly forbids him from going to Araby. Its presence colors the streets gray, making everything seem miserable and controlled. Ironically, Joyce is often associated with Dublin so much because of the depth and detail in which he describes it and how often he did. It is thought of to be his hometown, more so than many other writers, because he really spends a lot of time on it. And yet, he clearly despises it. But somewhere in his descriptions, you almost have to wonder if his writings reveal a deep sense of devotion. As much as Joyce openly disliked Dublin, there is no denying that he likely had his fair share of wonderful moments in the city. After all, Dublin is where he met the love of his life, Nora Barnacle. Perhaps Joyce's Dubliners is, in a weird, reverse psychological way, an authentic love letter to the city in spite of its less-than-stellar depiction of its people and its streets. Dublin seems to be almost like family to Joyce, and family as much as you might not like them sticks around with you. Joyce carried Dublin with him everywhere he went. Dubliners is an embodiment of that connection. Alright, well that brings part two of this James Joyce series to a close. If you haven't already, go do yourself a favor and read Araby Online, it's free, and why stop there? Go read Dubliners if you like these episodes, it's a great introduction to Joyce's work. As always, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Stay sharp, stay safe, and stay strong. And I will see you next time on the Perspectives on the Short Story Podcast from FSU Panama City. Bye bye